we are so blessed people that share in this fellowship are just amazing and they just kind of touch my heart when they when they talk about lord i've got to examine my heart and so because ultimately it's all about how we are living before the lord that's important so and it's always a blessing thank you so much for You know, what I want to share with you this morning is something I learned at seminary, um, but it was uh, something I have forgotten over the years. You know, there are so many wonderful treasures in the Word of God, aren't there? And it, it's sometimes difficult just to hold the big picture of everything that God has done for us. It's extraordinary what the Lord has done. And so... Um, you know, this is this is something that Di shared with me about a year ago, and I thought that it's something in my heart. I thought, Lord, this is this is going to be the basis of the Easter message, and so I've sat on this 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 word for for uh, about a year, and I'm just so excited to have this uh, this truth renewed in my life. And uh, if if you uh, have heard this before, it's going to be a wonderful refresher. Uh, if you haven't, it's a wonderful blessing. So uh, I wanted to say thank you, Di, for, for sharing that with me. It was incredibly special. So, uh, you know, we're going to start looking at Psalm 22. And I I haven't looked at Psalm 22 for some time. And I've forgotten about the depths and the riches and the treasures in Psalm 22. And in fact, despite my best efforts, I couldn't finish it this week. And so we will pick this, this account up. Uh, after the school holidays, and we, we will revisit this, and I'll give you a refresher. But uh, there's so much amazing, amazing truth uh, in, in this particular psalm. You need to understand something that uh, this psalm was written by David, and um, it's a prophetic psalm, and it was written nearly a thousand years before the time of Christ. I mean, that, that's quite a, an incredible pe uh, period of time. Um, and this psalm is sometimes called the psalm of the cross. It's an amazing because uh, David talks about crucifixion in this particular psalm. And when you think about it, the, the Roman Empire hadn't even been uh, built up, hadn't been established at this point. And yet David describing in minute detail a crucifixion event. And he had never even seen it, never even thought about it. And yet by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he reveals in graphic detail the picture of the crucifixion. And so uh, it's a prophetic psalm, as I said. And in David's day, death um, for a capital crime was done mostly by stoning. Um, and so it, it's quite stunning that, um, that a crucifixion is actually described in, in this particular psalm. This is a prophetic psalm, and it's a concise explanation of Christ's suffering and is the propitiating sacrifice. Uh, and so uh, it, and the, the psalm ends with the resultant praise to God for all that Jesus has done on the cross. Propitiation simply means Christ's suffering in our, our stead. It's averting God's wrath uh, by the offering of a gift. That's simply what propitiation means. And so uh, we, we see that Jesus has done that for us. Um, that uh, he actually took our sin. You know, we were in great trouble before we came to the Lord. We were about to be judged by the Almighty God, but Jesus averted God's wrath on our behalf. I just, I'm just so grateful to God because, you know, I, I had a bit of a colorful past. And, uh, and uh, it, you know, when I think of God's grace and what he's done, um, I shared with somebody the other day and kind of shocked him. Um, we used to drink beer uh, at school uh, before, in the morning before school started. And uh, we, we would go into chapel and, and every morning we'd say the Lord's Prayer. Did you do that here in New Zealand? Um, and there was assembly and we'd sing the Lord's Prayer and uh, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. And my prayer in the middle of that, this heathen actually said, Lord, thank you for our daily beer. 
because we were having daily beers at, at school. You know, I was so lost and so dark, and, and so God's judgment was upon me. And then when I heard the grace of God's gospel, I was so relieved. This huge weight had been rolled off my side. So anyway, propitiation is the averting of God's wrath by the offering of gift, a gift. And so here we have Jesus uh, who is uh, averting God's wrath uh, because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took God's wrath in our place. He made himself uh, our offering and he became our propitiation. As we begin to look at the psalm, okay, uh, it's quite amazing in its context, its accuracy, and its insight. There's quite an amazing revelation that goes on here uh, because not only does it describe the, the description, we get insights or glimpses into the supernatural battles that have been fought. And uh, uh, we, we're going to get into all of that by the time we finish. But uh, one of the incredible things is if you read Psalm 22 and then compare it with, uh, with Matthew 27, it's freaky. It really is quite amazing how this psalm written a thousand years uh, before time is actually being played out on the cross um, uh, as uh, with Jesus. And, and literally the very words and actions, everything that happens in Psalm 22 happens at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And so there can be no doubt that this psalm actually relates to the Lord. So, um, you know, how does David know all this a thousand years before time? Well, the Bible actually tells us in Acts chapter 2 and 29, I'm just going to read what it says because it's really relevant. And Paul is talking and he says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of that fact. Amen? Amen. So David is a prophet. He's a king and a prophet. He's a type of Jesus, king and priest. And so he's one of the, the first kings and prophets in the scriptures. But, uh, and he's, he's declaring the, the, the crucifixion. Uh, he is the, really the message of the Messiah. The suffering of the Savior that Judaism kind of missed. And you'll see why they, they, they missed it. Um, they, they say that Isaiah 53 had been tampered with by the Christian church. So they don't read Isaiah 53 because that would be too, too obvious. Um, but here in Psalm 22, they believe we've also done some tampering. But that, that's uh, another story for, for the week after. And we'll get to that and we'll show why that's not the case. But we need to understand something of the culture in the day. Is that okay? Can I, can I do that? You may. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, let's you and I go outside and we'll have a talk. I don't think others are interested. So we need to understand that um, the Bible verse, chapters and verses uh, only came about four or five hundred years ago. Uh, the first Bible to have chapters and verses was written in 1511, so the 16th century. Uh, before that, how did you uh, uh, know where the person was speaking? Well, in those days, they were a much more godly society than, than we are today. Everybody studied the scriptures. It was part of the education curriculum. Everybody studied the scriptures. And so when you wanted somebody to uh, uh, look at a particular scripture, you wanted to draw attention to it, you started to quote it. And uh, as you quoted it, uh, people would, who had memorized the word would know exactly what you're referring to. It's important that we see that because Psalm opens, Psalm 22 opens with these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ is drawing our attention to Psalm 22. He's wanting his hearers uh, to actually uh, see something that is relevant and important in Psalm 22. Okay, Why? Because Psalm 22 talks about the Messiah, the ministry of the Messiah and the suffering of the Savior. And it's, it's really an important psalm, and we're not going to get through all of it today. But the, the first verse, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember, that's what Jesus said on the cross. Those were his opening remarks. It was about the fourth thing he said on the cross. My God, my God, 
quite the start for something. So it's really important that we understand that the, the first verse poses the question, God, why have you forsaken me? And the rest of the psalm answers it. When you understand that, you really begin to start understanding Psalm 22. Without that understanding, it becomes quite confusing. But if you understand that that's the question, uh, the person on the cross is saying, why have you forsaken me? And, and the rest of the psalm answers that. So God planned the crucifixion in his foreknowledge and his predetermined counsel. Amen. The cross was no accident. As Dr. Dye loves to tell us, and so rightly so, before there was a sinner, there was a savior. God planned the, the, the crucifixion of his son. This was before eternity, and it became very important that we see that. The cross was no accident. Jesus, in his great love for mankind, assumed our guilt and the responsibility of our sins and died in our place as our propitiation. <laughs> There upon the cross, God laid upon his sons the iniquity of us all. Your sins, my sins, every evil and everything we ever did wrong will ever do was laid upon Jesus Christ. He laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. For all we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why did God do this? Why would he do this? God's love That's why he did it. He wants a relationship with you and I. He loves each and every one of us. Sometimes it's hard to love ourselves. Can anybody say amen? But you know, God always loves us despite our failings and despite our shortcomings. He loves us, and that's why he did that. So, but the moment that Jesus became our sin bearer. The moment, that, at that precise moment, we need to confront himself, our sins. He was separated from the Father. And because of that, uh, he was forsaken. He tasted death for all men, so that all men could have eternal life. It doesn't mean that all men are saved, but if you come into the covenant and repent of your sins and ask Jesus Christ into your heart and life, the provision has been made for all men. Amen. Not universal salvation, as some teach, uh, it, it's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So he tasted death for all men so that all men could live. He was forsaken so that you and I could be adopted. He died the just for you and I, the unjust. And in that act of dying in our place, the eternal union between the Father and the Son was broken. That, that union had never been broken ever from time and memorial for all eternity. This is the first time Jesus and the Father were separated. Now, one day he said, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? The weight and the horror of being separated from his Father as he became our personal sin sacrifice. You know, he was broken, he struggled as he became our sin, sinful sacrifice. God turned away from him. I was kind of, I remember a story I heard many years ago about a father who was asked to help in a medical procedure, a very painful medical procedure for his son. And it was really important that, that they held the son um, uh, still while they performed this painful medical procedure. And they strapped him down, but even strapped down, you can still, uh, still move. And so the father was there in, in the theater to try and uh, help the, his son and talk to his son and calm his son down and keep him still while they performed, I don't know what it was, but it might have been something like a spinal tap or something like that, something incredibly painful, especially for a little child. And as, as they began the procedure, this child began to cry out in, in absolute pain and agony. And the, the father's heart was breaking because he was having to hold his son still as they inflicted this horrendous pain. And he said, I couldn't look, I had to turn my head away. I couldn't stand the crying and the pain and knowing what was happening. And I think that that's exactly what was happening in Father God's heart. As he looked at his son upon the cross, became bearing the sins of mankind. He couldn't look. God is too holy to look upon sin. So he turned his face away and forsook his son. 
Christ was forsaken, separated, alone, in an agony upon the cross. He was hanging there in excruciating pain as he waited for to die. Let's look at the psalm. We're going to get into Psalm 22. I'm going to read a couple of verses. So Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Remember, this is the question, and here's the rest of the answer. My God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hast not heard, uh, and in the night season, and not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, and they trusted, and thou didst deliver thee. They cried unto thee, and they were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of people. All that they see me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the look. They shake their heads, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Does that seem, seem remotely familiar? All us Gentiles who are New Covenant believers recognize that this is exactly what was taking place at the cross. David is prophesying the scene a thousand years in advance, exactly as it was going to happen uh, at the time of Christ. To the, the minute detail, I found this prophecy absolutely stunning. He's making every word, and even some of the very words spoken by the priests and the scribes are recorded in Matthew, but they were first recorded a thousand years earlier, the things that they would say in the psalm that David writes. He certainly was a prophet for excellence. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my mouth. What's going on here? David's prophesying about the very day and the very hour of Christ upon the cross. And he's talking about this, uh, um, about Jesus being crucified. David is looking forward nearly a thousand years to the cross. Jesus on the cross is quoting for Psalm 22, and he's saying, hey, guys, look at me. I am the fulfillment of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's drawing attention to all his hearers to look back. There's a message that we're going to explore today that will blow your mind. It's really important that we see this. You see, David is telling us what's going to happen to the Messiah. And Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that he himself is the Messiah on the cross. And they missed it. They missed it. We'll look at why Judaism has missed it. There's a, a really big stumbling block in the way. But Jesus is trying to draw Israel's attention uh, to the, the fact that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. He's fulfilling the prophecy right before their very eyes, and they don't see it. David's prophecy is about the very moments of the crucifixion. Look at verse 2. And bear in mind, this a thousand years before. My God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night seasons, and not silent. Was there a time of darkness when Jesus was on the cross? Perhaps. David records this, this detail. Not an insignificant detail at all. I mean, this is huge. You don't talk about darkness in the daytime. Normally. This is a profound prophetic statement. And he's really talking about the, the night season is when the darkness covered the earth when Jesus hung upon the cross. And uh, this is no eclipse, folks, because no eclipse lasts for three hours. Amen. This is a, a spiritual and physical darkness. I'm sure that every cloud and every threatening thunderstorm was rising over Golgotha and it was dark and there was the spiritual darkness that was taking place. And this is not an eclipse. Uh, here on the cross at midday, the sky grew dark and threatening. There is a sense of foreboding. It seemed like at this point that the devil has won, doesn't it? The Messiah is now hanging on the cross and the devil saying, I've got you now right where I want you. Uh, and, and victory looked almost assured. And so uh, there's that sense of foreboding and that is over the thing. And here the Lord of glory is clinging to life. Think about this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
and he's on the cross and he's just about to die. He's expiring and darkness covers the earth. Amazing. Amazing. You know, it has well been said that at midnight at Jesus' birth, there was light in night. The angels appeared and great glory shone all around. And at midday of his death, there was darkness. That's an amazing thing, you know. The, the scriptures actually reveal details hundreds and thousands of years in advance. And people say, I don't believe the Bible. Show, give me proof. Yes, proof. Yes, proof. How could David possibly know? And when you add it, one thing might be a coincidence. But when you have line upon line and precept upon precept building up, you can stand in order and say, hey, this truly is the word of God. Can I have an amen? So it becomes really important. Uh, why is all this happening? Because Christ is making atonement for us. Remember the Second Corinthians 5.21, we know it so well. For he made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is what's happening. This is what it costs to take your sin and my sin away for us to be declared righteous, holy, and pure. It was going to take the propitiation the, the, the special offering of Christ's life upon the cross to bring us salvation and redemption. I'm excited about that. So Jesus is bearing all our sins. He paid a debt he didn't owe. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. Remember that old song? He's taking our place on the cross. And the wrath of God is being poured out upon his son. You know, I think of that father in the operating center. It broke his heart because he saw the pain and the agony of his son. How much more the heavenly father, after having this perfect union for his son for all eternity, now sees his son as the sin offering and he's, he's struggling. I think not only was the father's heart being grieved and pierced, but so is Jesus. It's an absolutely a, a horrendous thing that's taking place so that you and I could be uh, forgiven and washed in precious blood of the Lord. The wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus Christ upon the cross. God's judgment, his wrath, fell upon Christ. His death gives us life. And that's why we can celebrate today. That's why we can rejoice because Jesus has risen from the grave. Your sins are washed away. You are forgiven. You are justified before the Lord. Anybody excited about the fact that Jesus does? I am. I think it's amazing that Jesus would take a sinner like me and call me into the ministry. If it wasn't the Lord, if anybody else would have done it, I said, I wonder if that person really knows what they're doing. But it was the Lord. Yeah. God is so gracious. Remember the words of Isaiah, speaking about the cross in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. He says this, Surely he took up on our own infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered them stricken of God smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. I want you to remember that, Franks. He was crushed for our iniquities. In fact, would you say that out loud? He was crushed for our iniquities. Once more, he was crushed for our iniquities. You'll see why that becomes important in a little while. The, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know, it's, a, it's not a, uh, surprising that the, the Jews actually missed that Jesus was the suffering uh, Savior. Because there's a bit of a mystery around. Do you remember even Jesus talking to his disciples? They were a bit thick, like me. Okay, I won't go any further than that. <laughs> but he, was telling, he was telling his disciples that he was going to go to the cross. And, and, and he was explaining the message of propitiation. He was saying, how I'm going to be your savior. And what does Peter get up and do? So, Lord, far be it from you. God forbid this. And God has to, to deal with Peter. None of the disciples understood why Jesus had to die, let alone the fact that he would rise again from the dead. They didn't understand it. And there's a mystery over Jesus' death because the, the, the disciples didn't understand it. The Pharisees and, and the Sadducees didn't understand it. The devil and demons didn't understand it. They were totally confused. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2 says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This was God's plan. 
all along. But because they didn't understand this, uh, they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In crucifying Jesus, the devil sealed his fate. He thought he'd won. He thought he was triumphant when he uh, would have the greatest victory in his life. But in fact, it was his greatest eternal defeat. Praise God. It was the devil's defeat when he crucified Jesus. Okay. Theologians talk about seven editions of divine law. Uh, you, you will be familiar with them, um, or perhaps not written in, in this form, but it, it, it's written in nature, Psalm 19, verse 1. Uh, you know, we, we sing those songs, creation reveals your majesty. And so the, the, in nature, there's a, there's a proclamation of the majesty or the message of Jesus. Uh, it's written on our conscience. We know what's right and wrong because we have a conscience. That's the second edition of divine law. It's written on tablets of stone so that we know what the Lord of God. This is part of God's progressive revelation. And it's written in Christ, the living word. We could go on. There, there's seven, but you, you get the point. There are different editions of uh, divine law. Now, I want to look at the first edition this morning. And uh, just look at uh, one of the proclamations of the gospel through nature. And it's found again in Psalm 22 and verse 6 through 8. Let me just read that to you. And uh, it says this, but I am a worm and no man, a, man a, 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 a reproach of men and despised of people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the look, they shake their heads, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him and see that he, seeing that he delighted him. The very words that David penned a thousand years ago are the words that the, the priests and the scribes were saying to Jesus upon the cross. The very words. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. Magnificent detail in this prophecy. It's well been said, a picture is worth a thousand words. Amen. So, wouldn't you rather I shut up and you start looking at some pictures? Okay. So let's let's look at a few. So the the fact that I want to draw here your attention to is that uh, the, the prophet says, and this is a prophecy about the Messiah. He says, "But I am a worm and no man." Okay. Uh, if people in Jesus' day had understood Psalm two, they would have known about the suffering Savior. They would have known that the Messiah would have to die. But because they were ignorant of that, they didn't understand the time of their visitation. And that's why they missed Jesus. Okay. So David hints at what this mystery is. And uh, he talks in verse 6 and explains why Christ had to die with the picture of a worm. The Bible refers to man as a worm many times. You may have been a victim of worm theology. I don't know if you've ever experienced worm theology. It's a terrible thing. People come up and they say, oh, God is so holy and so magnificent and so wonderful, which is all true. But then they come and say, but you, you're a worthless sinner. You, you are, you know, you are lower than low. You are terrible. And then they, they distort uh, the, the, the picture of the gospel. It's, it's a bad teaching, worm theology. And there are people who think that they are terrible and they are not worthy to be loved by God because they feel like they are women. Ever, ever come across that before? Am I the only one? I believe. Job, in the book of Job, one of his friends, Bildad, is actually explaining why we can't be justified before God. Did you get that? He's explaining why we cannot be justified before God. And you know, it's a builder. It always seems to me those who know the least always have the most to say. Ever notice? <laughs> and the other builder saying, "No, you can't be justified before God. You're kidding me." And we can read about it in Job 20, 25 and, and verses four through six. He says, "How can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of woman?" You are so defiled, man. You've got no chance of being, being holy before the Lord. Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not, and the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man, which is a worm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Two people are mentioned or referred to in that particular uh, 
portion of scripture, the man and the son of man. Remember who the son of man is? It's Jesus. Remember, we we're looking at that in Daniel chapter 7, and Jesus as referring referred to, he said, you'll see the, the Son of Man coming in great clouds and glory. He's returned, talking about uh, his return to the, And yet, this particular passage says that the Son of Man is a worm. That's interesting. And it's worth digging into. And so, we, we're going to do a little bit of that. Now. And so, I, I just want to share um, a, a little thought here, you know, that uh, rumor is the word for worm. And rumor actually means maggots. And whenever you find it, death and decay and anything rotting, you'll find maggots, worms, rumor. That's the, that's the Hebrew word, okay? It's that something is decaying and something rotten. In the Bible, uh, mankind is symbolically represented by the word rumor. Man is a worm, okay? Not because he's small and repulsive, okay, but because he's in a state of constant decay. We live in spiritual death without Jesus. We are dying. We are rotten inside. We are decaying. And so it's a, a very appropriate um, thing to, to describe man as a worm in this instance because born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Amen? If you're born once physically and you get born again spiritually, you'll only die once. Praise God. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's really important that we see that. So uh, this word rumor is actually a very good uh, explanation for, um, for, for mankind because we are spiritually dead. We decayed inside. We are mor morally putrid. We don't know what's right or wrong. But what about the Son of Man? If we say that that's the, the different, what about the son of, what about Jesus? That's not true of Jesus, and it's not. Thank God. There's another word in Hebrew for the word worm, and it's tola. Tola is, is a very special kind of word, and uh, it, it's what this, this word tola is found in, in Psalm 22 and verse 6. And when he says, I am a worm and not a man. Uh, the, the, the prophetic message is of the Savior being a worm. And that's exactly what Job had been saying, that the Son of Man was a worm. So they tie them together. We get, we get an understanding that this is the word Tola. Okay. Uh, so here, a picture is worth a thousand words. This little chat, this worm over here, is the gospel uh, preached by a worm. Okay, and so we're going, to, we're going to look at that. We're going to see how this worm actually preaches the gospel. It's the word tola, uh, and there are various spellings, but it, it kind of translates as the crimson worm or the red worm. Uh, it, it's all the same same worm, but uh, they sometimes talk about the crimson grub or the, the scarlet worm. Same deal. It's the tola worm. It's that worm there. So. Uh, we're looking at a, a special kind of worm, and this is the worm that refers to Christ. This is the Cocos illicis, and uh, it's a very special worm. It's a tiny worm, and it's the worm that's mentioned here in Psalm 22. Uh, most, let me just say this. Most of the photographs and the information I've got here, I studied in, in, in seminary, totally forgot it, but uh, when Guy passed to me, so I want to give credit to Bart Boer because uh, I, I, got his, I use his photographs and some of them anyway, and uh, uh, some of his thoughts. Um, but this was the Cocos illicis, the red worm or the, the, the crimson grub. And it goes through various stages of lifestyle, and they're all significant, and it's all how the gospel is preached. So here is um, a, uh, a Cocos illicis in a cocoon stage. It's just a different form uh, of the same worm. And I'll show you a couple of other pictures. Here uh, is various pictures, um, and uh, it's uh, over here. Uh, it's in its cocoon stage. Uh, over here, it's in the hardened shell, and you can see the size of the leaf and how small these little worms are. They're, they're, they're minute in size, okay? And these are the various uh, lifestyle cycles that this worm has found. Now, it's interesting that in Israel, they harvest these worms, okay? Uh, much like they used to harvest 
the, the sea mollusks. Remember um, when they, they would harvest the sea mollusks to make the color blue. Uh, and, and it was so expensive because these mollusks were hard to find. And, and because of that, it was a very pricey dye. And so that's why it became known as royal blue, because only the kings could really afford to buy blue. So if you're wearing blue today, then uh, you are uh, very wealthy. At least you would have been considered that way back in the... <laughs> and it's exactly the same uh, with this worm. You know, this worm is harvested, except this worm is harvested uh, to make the color red. Crimson, scarlet, green, one of those um, sort of uh, aberrations of uh, the word red. So the, the messianic prophecy that they were saying, I am a worm, is a picture of how, let me just show it to you. Um, is that blurry to you? Yes. Okay. It's, um, it's supposed to be a picture of a beaker in the red dye that is placed in it. I don't know if you can make it look really with it. But anyway, it's, it, what they've done to form this red dye is they've taken the worm and they've crushed it and placed it in, in boiling water. <laughs> it's really, really tough on the worm. But you know, it's a picture of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was crushed. Remember how you said it? That he was crushed for our iniquities? Yeah. This is, he's crushed. And if you can't recognize the worm in there. And, and Isaiah 52, 14 says, he was marred beyond recognition. So again, this little worm is identified with Christ because he's crushed and unrecognizable. It's a very interesting similar. And as they begin to build, you begin to see more and more how this little worm preaches the gospel. In fact, here um, is, remember we were looking at uh, the Paleo-Hebrew uh, a while back, and we were looking at different, uh, in the beginning, and how the gospel was preached in the very first word uh, of, of the Bible. Uh, anyway, here, here is the Hebrew that was written, and it's uh, Anarchy Torah. And in ancient cryptographic Hebrew, the letter Tav, which is right there, right at the end, um, is uh, exactly uh, like the Christian cross. Therefore, this is the word that appears in Psalm 22 and verse 6. It could be really said that it promotes the idea of a sacrificial worm that is crushed. Again, another coincidence. They're starting to add it. Did you know when it was time for the crimson worm to reproduce, which it does only once in its entire life? You know what it does? It finds a tree and it attaches itself to that tree and you cannot remove it. If you try and remove it, you'll destroy it, you'll kill it, you'll break it tear its body apart because it affixes itself so dedicatedly and permanently to the tree that there is no removing it. It has this incredible uh, 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 foresight to be attached. And it will build any flat wooden surface. It will do that, a fence post or a tree, and it attaches itself so completely. And uh, the, the crimson worm actually lays its heads under its shells. And so here is it, it's attaching itself unto the tree. And underneath this shell here um, are the, the baby uh, uh, worms that are being protected uh, by the mother. So it's important that uh, we see uh, that this, the parent is shielding its young with its shell. Uh, and it goes, it goes between its young and its enemy. That's how it, it's a go-between. The, 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 the parent is um, now overshadowing and standing guard against its young. Uh, it really is a go-between in every sense of the word, because to get to the young, you have to go between the mother and uh, the worms themselves. When the larva hatch uh, under the shell, uh, they live there, uh, the, mo the mother's body provides protection for her babies and also gives them food. The young literally feed on the living body of its mother. A few days after feeding on the living body of the mother, the worms grow and the mother dies as a result of sacrificing her life to feed her babies. 
The night before Jesus died, while he was still alive, he offers communion to his children. What does he say? Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. He's behaving just like the word. He says, take, drink my blood, which is shed for you. He's behaving like the word. In its death thoughts, when this little mollusk dies or little uh, worm dies, um, it actually oozes out uh, this stuff that can be harvested uh, to make the dye. And it stains the wood that it's attached to uh, and covers, it's the young worms are covered with this red dye. This is what it looks like when, when they, they harvest these little worms from the tree. You can see um, it, it's uh, quite symbolic. Uh, I wonder if it raises any pictures in your mind as to, uh, as this is the picture of Jesus, is this a fair representation of, of what is taking place here as they harvest the worms? This red blood-like covering is very distasteful and protects the worms from their enemies. It tastes really foul. And so it protects the worms from its enemies. And it also stains the babies this bright red color. Uh, for the rest of their lives, they never lose that stain. We saw earlier on how that worm was stained red. So uh, the followers of Jesus are covered and protected by his blood and marked with the same title of Christian. In the same way as the worms were. Right? And amazing. It's starting to build an incredible picture. This is not the end. Uh, after dying and giving its life for its children, something amazing happens. For a period of three days after its death, the worm releases this crimson gel and uh, it can be scraped off the tree. We, we saw that somebody had already taken the gel off, uh, but it's the crimson gel that was used to make uh, the, the red dye. Think about this three days. As Jesus' blood soaked garments were in the tomb for three days before the resurrection, his blood has been made available to us, not just for three days, but Jesus' blood is there to wash and protect everyone for all eternity, for those who put their faith and their trust in the finished work of Christ. What an incredible uh, resemblance to the Tolo worm. Once they've got this dye, do you know what they do with it? That it's used in very special places. It's used, this dye is used in the tabernacle which represents God, and the high priest, which represents man to God. And so we can read about this in, in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 36. It says, this is God's instruction to Moses. It says, Thou shalt make an hanging for the door of the tent of blue, purple, and scarlet. Guess where the scarlet comes from? The cocus delicis, the crimson worm, the scarlet dog. So, this worm is supposed to point us to Jesus. How? How does this tell us anything about Jesus? How is this connected to Christ? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I am the door. Same door to the tabernacle. That's where the red was used. That's where Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. I said to you, it also is a symbolic of the um, the high priest. It's used in the high priest. I had to scratch my head about that. I couldn't find much information about it. And I'm saying, God, you know, what, what, what's the point of this? And I was praying. Only I, I, I this, this morning I felt uh, Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. He's our intercessor. It's the, the Latin word intercedere, and uh, it, it literally means to go between. Uh, between us and the enemy, Jesus is our intercessor. He's praying on our behalf, and uh, he, he is interceding for us. He's going between us. In exactly the same way as the mother uh, uh, worm has covered her, uh, her babies and is interceding, protecting them from uh, their attackers. So it's quite amazing. Beginning to build and beginning to develop, we see the gospel becoming clearer and clearer into focus. By the morning of the first, fourth day, it starts, the small room starts losing color and turning to wax, which is white in color. 
Yeah, it's just started the process um, and it's starting to lose it, its red coloring and it's turning to red. So it's another stage in its lifetime cycle. The worm uh, actually uh, goes through another stage here where uh, the head and the tail are drawn together and you can see with a little bit of imagination a heart mm -hmm. taking place wow. and it's attached to the tree. Jesus loved us so much that he was crucified on a tree. The heart of Jesus has been displayed. As the, as the head and the room, uh, head and the tail are pulled together, looks like a heart. There's another photograph of it. Um, they've, they've broken up. But can you see how it's changing and how very pronounced the white is? The first stage is, is very nominal. But you can see it's becoming pure white. And if the process was about to continue without breaking it open, it would become snow white. What does Psalm 22 say? My heart has turned to wax and it has melted within me. This worm is, is, is doubling up and, and is a beautiful picture uh, of what's happening. What does Isaiah say? Come, let us reason together. Say, for though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You see how it's all pointing us to Jesus? This worm is amazing. This worm is preaching the gospel, written in the first edition of the divine law. Everything in the life cycle of the worm tells us about Jesus. No wonder it is sometimes called the Messiah worm. Why? This is the secret of David's revelation in Psalm 22 and verse 6. It reveals that this worm, it says, I will give my life for my children. I will feed them with my body. I will protect them and cover them with my blood. I will be their high priest and their sins, though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. While Jesus has been mocked, now we're going back to the cross. While Jesus has been mocked and abused and beaten, they strip him. And they put a, 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 a garment on him. In Matthew 27 and 28, you read about it. I don't believe that this is coincidence. This I find amazing. And they put what color robe upon Jesus? So uh, what are they saying? I believe that they're identifying him as, as the king of the Jews. But symbolically, they're marking him as the crimson worm. It's linking back to Psalm 22. And the two, the, the two experiences uh, really point to Jesus Christ as our propitiation. My God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? He dies upon the cross. He sheds his blood to redeem you and I. This is the Lord's doing. I'm just going to leave it there because there's so much more. And if I start to get into it, uh, we, we will be here all day. And, uh, but but I, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did when I saw it. It was uh, truly stunning for me to, to see that again. And, uh, did you enjoy it? Amen. Some of you did. Praise God. I, I hope the rest of you. But we will carry on with Psalm 22 because this revelation is gets deeper and more powerful uh, the further we go. Uh, and we'll have to pick that up next time we're together. So uh, I'm just going to ask if we could bow our heads in a word of prayer. And I'm just thinking, you know, uh, Jesus is our intercessor. He's covering us. He's, he's our go-between. Go he's protecting us from all that the enemy uh, is, is doing in our lives. And I, I wonder if this morning you have a need in your life, whether it's a need of physical healing, uh, uh, a spiritual renewal, you're tired, you need uh, whatever the need you have, I want to say to you, Jesus longs to fulfill that need. He wants to make you whole. He wants to bless you. And so I would count it a real honor and privilege this morning if you would uh, actually uh, indicate, if you have a need this morning, just raise your hand up. I would love to pray for you. Thank you. If there's anybody, I thank you. Thank you. The people raising their hands all over. Just about everybody has raised their hands. Um, once you've raised it, you can put it down. And so I'm just going to pray for you and uh, in your heart if you would just agree with me and pray for all those that have indicated that they have a need for God to do something in your life. Father, we know that you are the great protector. 
you are the lover of our soul. Lord, your plan for us are for good, not for evil. Lord, you, you long to, to make us whole. Uh, Lord, where there's nothing missing, nothing broken, the shalom of God, the peace of God. And so, Lord, I, I lift up my brothers and sisters who have indicated that they have a need today. You know exactly why they've raised their hands. You know exactly what, what their need is. And Father, we thank you that the promise in your words is that you will provide all our needs according to your riches in glory. And so I lift up my brothers and sisters this morning and I pray, Lord, for healing. I pray for restoration. I pray for renewal. I pray for every good blessing of the Lord to come upon those who have indicated a need this morning. Lord, whatever that need is, you are more than able to meet it. So as we bow before you reverently, as we remember the cross this morning, as we remember what you did, how you defeated death and rose from the grave. Lord, if you can do that, and we know you can, Lord, there is nothing too difficult for you. And so I want to stand in faith and in agreement with all those who have a need this morning. Whatever that need is, we declare victory over it. We declare that it's done. In Jesus' name. There's nothing too hard for you. I pray, Lord, that we could lay hold by faith for whatever is going on in people's lives. We declare righteousness, healing, joy, deliverance, peace, and every good work of God to be our portion this morning. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Hallelujah. Praise God. <coughs> Praise God. A reminder that we don't have meetings for the next two weeks as it's school holidays. Um, we'll be doing the, the books this holiday. So at the, at the end of the holiday, if anybody would like to see the books, you're most welcome to come see them. They're open uh, so that uh, I can show you 